the R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Well, this week's Solutionist Thinker is Carmen Stevens. She's a winemaker and she's chief executive of the Carmen Stevens Foundation. Carmen Stevens has won several awards, including Naked Wines Winemaker of the Year 2015. She is a graduate of an agricultural college. She did that way back in 1995. In 2014, there was a big uprise at Alsenburg. And I read a News 24 article and I was shocked. What was written in that article is exactly what they did to me 20 years ago then. And I was like, this cannot continue. This, this should be addressed. Why 20 years later, students of color are still going through the same stuff that I went through? I'm Bruce Whitfield. You're listening to RMB Solutionist Thinking. Were, were, were you a lonely woman among a sea of two-tone shirts and Korbruk? I was one of five. It was the first year that Alsenberg accepted five girls into the college. So every year they take in 100 students and five of them for that specific year, which was 93, was women. And what was that like? That was a very challenging time in my life, <laughs> as you can think. Um, 93, yeah, I think uh, I had a different idea of of what the college would be like before I arrived. And on my arrival to find that everybody that's there is actually white made me um, stand out a bit, maybe a bit too much. Well, and especially at that time, South Africa is a deeply uncertain place. It's still, we aren't yet in our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very different country. And here you are as a trailblazer, as a black woman in an environment which is hostile, I assume, toward you. Very hostile. As much as, as it was a challenge to me, it was a challenge for them as well. I think I was... Everything that they did not see black people as, I unfortunately never was raised to keep my mouth. You know, I had an opinion and I had an opinion about a lot of things. And that caused me a lot of grief. Did you make friends? I had a few friends. I had the girls and I had, say, three to four of the male students that was my friends um, but that's a very small amount of people mm. to have a friends at a college what motivated you to go into that environment and to go towards agriculture and then to go into this very conservative environment the reason i went into or i decided on winemaking is that i had a what people now would refer to as a learning disability. I could not read and write English so well. And my mom, her solution was after many nights of sitting with me is try this, which was Mills and Boons, read this. <laughs> she, did, and well, she must have changed her life in so many other ways. Exactly. <laughs> I was so little and she made me read that every night for her. Every night I had to read. And it really, I mean, it's things that a child that age should not read. But made me want to read. And uh, most of those settings was either in vineyards with wine. And one particular book was about this winemaker in California and how she blended wine. 
And I said to my mum one day, I'm going to be a winemaker. Not. You're the first person <laughs> I have ever met who's had a positive outcome out of reading Mills and Boone. Yes. So completely romantic vision of what winemaking was going to be about. I applied to Alsenburg. I matriculated in 1990. So my first application was in 1990, and I was refused based on color. The second year, I was refused based on that I did not come from an agriculture background. And the third time, I was refused because I did not do military service. I would say 95% of the students that did study at Alsenburg did come out yeah. of a military service. Well, there would have been white sort. male yeah. 20-year-olds who had gone through the national service system in South Africa. But but that just, again, emphasizes just how different an environment you were going into from what you were used to and what we're used to today. Yes, but I didn't know that until I arrived there. I really did not know that. I remember my first day walking up these stairs and these guys were standing on both sides of the staircase and they would say, morning, Miss Stevens, good morning, Miss Stevens. And when I got to what, which I thought was step number 20, I just turned around and ran back. I was like, they're going to kill me. <laughs> and after five minutes sitting in my, in my room thinking, nobody's going to come get me. I have to go back. I had to face it. And years, years later, I went back to, I was invited to come and have a talk at the college. And I walked up these same stairs and was only eight. And I, I stood there, with, oh my God, I remember so clearly this was like a mountain in front of me because all these big boys were standing there and they knew who I was. I didn't know who they were. And that was really, really intimidating. Because traditionally, if I had to ask people listening to this to sketch a picture of a winemaker. They'd probably be 40 to 45. Still in South Africa, they would be a white man. Um, in many cases, there would be people who had come up through wine-growing families mm -hmm. and had gone and studied viticulture at Stellenbosch. Um, and that's the archetypal image that we have in South Africa of a winemaker. You don't tick any of those boxes, and you certainly didn't tick any of those boxes back then. What made you stick to it? What made you go, I can overcome the prejudice, I can overcome the feeling of not fitting in because I have my Mills and Boone dream? That was the only alternative I I had to work to get there. I had to. My mom didn't have the money to send me to college. So I worked in a factory in Elsas River for months. I sold shoes on Cape Town station, station over weekends for months. I sold chocolate eclairs for months. That was the only money I had. I had to make it work. I had to take whatever came my way. In my second year, it became unbearable really unbearable, to a point where my mom said to me, you pack your bags or I'll come and pack it for you. It was it was a time that I never in my life went back. It was horrible. It was racism at its best. And I decided before I go, I said, I'll pack my bags. But before I go, I will go see the head of agriculture, Western Cape. He was based at the college. And I told him what 
I said to him, I basically said to him, I'm going to close your college for you. I'm going to the newspaper. Anybody that wants to listen to me, I'm going to tell the world what's happening at this college. And he made me sit down, tell him the whole story and made drastic changes. Went back on the Monday, he called everybody together, made it very clear. And from there onwards, my life was much, much better. Are you still in contact with people who graduated with you? Are you still friends with some of the people that you graduated with? I have some great friends, and I have people that I would like to refer to as people that I met while I was there. I don't think they were You know who you are. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How much has the wine industry changed, if at all, since then? Not much. I ask the question deliberately because the wine industry, I think, sees itself as having an image problem, but perhaps the wine industry in South Africa is a structural problem. In 2014, there was a big uprise at Alsenburg, and I read a News 24 article, and I was shocked. What was written in that article is exactly what they did to me 20 years ago then. And I was like, this cannot continue. This this should be addressed. Why 20 years later, students of color are still going through the same stuff that I went through? And I tried to connect. I did connect with the people that finished with me, and we tried to put something in place. But funny enough, the college did not come through for that. So, and if I look at how many parents still call me up to date, tell me what must I do for my kid to survive at this college. That is heartbreaking. But that goes back to what just was published at Stellenbosch just a few mm. weeks ago about colored women. It's the same. It's the same mentality. And if I look at the numbers at Alsenburg at the moment, students of color versus white students, and the same with university, why are there so little, so few students actually being accepted into these institutions? What, where is the gatekeeping? Well, the gatekeeping seems to be very effective. It's, it's been very effective. It's been effective at the colleges. It's been effective in the industry. Do you find that prejudice spilling over still into the industry itself? Because the industry would like to see itself as one that's transformative. It's an industry that employs 300,000 people. Um, It paints a picture of itself as a great corporate citizen, for want of a better term. There's definitely a spillover. Make no mistake, there is some fantastic wine people out there But there's also people that know what I like to call, they appoint people they know that they can manipulate, manage manage them, you know, get your input, but only to a certain extent. They appoint people in positions, but you never get to a position or to a, a level where you can actually make a contribution. Yes, the industry is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. And the reason is that, in my opinion, they're not equipping these people to make a proper contribution. We just, there was just appointed um, a transformation manager through, uh, for the wine industry. 
I see hard days for that lady because this is not this is not an easy industry. There is about 60 plus black owned wine brands in South Africa. We do not get a foot into this market. People have a preconceived idea already. If it's a black wine, that's what they call it. The quality can obviously not be there. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's a wine owned by a black person and therefore you can only pay X amount for this wine. How you change that? I've been in the industry now for 23 years. If I didn't find a market overseas, I don't think I would have been able to go on my own. Tell me how you got into creating your own brand and then looking at an environment in South Africa which you tell us is hostile to to you as a black woman. And again, the woman thing is important there as well because yeah. can women make wine? Women are amazing winemakers. Exactly. <laughs> but, but there is a prejudice. There is a, there is a prejudice. And I think maybe the barrier between men and women as winemakers is, is slowly breaking down. Yeah. But the race issue in South Africa is pertinent. So how did you persist in creating your own brand? Look at the local environment, just go, you know what? Actually, it's easier to take this and go global. No, it was very different. It was very different. I worked for a very nice company. It was an American-owned company, and they gave me a lot of free reign. And then in 2011, I think, um, I got a call one night, Friday night. Um, I was just divorced. So I look at my phone. I think, kids, what's happening to the kids? And I see it's 8 o'clock. And I pick and I say, hi. And this guy said, hi, I am Rowan Cromley, and I'm calling you from the UK. And I'm going, like, what do you want? <laughs> and he goes, like, how would you like, how would you like to have your own wine label? And you're thinking, Be is this Wackhead Simpson? Yeah, I'm thinking. Prank calling me. Go play. And I said, listen, it's Friday night. It's eight o'clock. You don't have something better to do than to prank <laughs> me? I said, where did you get my number? He explained it. And I said, well. Please tell this person, which was a very good friend of mine, thank you, but I don't have time for this now. And um, I still said, tell him that the English accent is a nice cherry on the cake. And I put down the phone. And this guy called me back. And he said, can I at least have your email address? I said, why don't you just ask him? But here it is. Gave it to him. The Monday I got back to uh, my workplace and checked my emails. And there was this email from this guy giving me his whole pedigree. He started Virgin Wines for such brands, and I was like, uh -oh. oh, my God. How do you recover from that? How do I phone this guy and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was actually quite rude. Um, and it, it was, I was, how am I? And eventually he called me and made so me So you didn't offer. have the guts to phone No, I back. didn't have the guts. I don't have the guts. He called me, and um, he said to me, come on up. We would like to to help you. I know that the market is difficult. Let us help you. And after a few months putting things together, they launched my, what it was published as my solo career by, I had to say, I'm going to make two wines that they will sell on their platform. But it was like um, pre-order before the wines made. And we, and they raised 1.2 million for me right. in 10 hours. Yes. 
to start so, my own so, brand. So explain how that works then, because this idea of pre-order, we've mm-hmm. seen lo- lots of venture capital works that way. Um, you, you might produce a movie, so you might put uh, – a thousand rand mm-hmm. into a movie to get your name in the credits or ten thousand rand to get a share of the profits. Yeah. It was that sort of It was that sort. It was people would, would, would phone in and say, okay, I will take two cases, I will take two bottles and here's the money for that. And they gave me, they gave me a week. I said, this is never going to happen. I've never heard of wine being sold like this. It's not chocolates. It's still a luxury, you know, wine is, people don't really need it. So what did you produce for them? I made them a Shiraz, only the next year, eh? a Shiraz and a Chenin Blanc. And it was sold out even, I mean, it was sold way before I even secured the fruit. How scary was that? That was very scary. I was like, how is this even possible? Securing the fruit. Now, you don't have your own vineyards. No. Um, that is a luxury par excellence. I, mean, I don't know what land goes for per hectare in Stellenbosch, but I bet you it's a lot more than land goes for in a maize-growing area. Absolutely. Um, and great wine-growing land is taken up, and it's been taken up for 400 mm-hmm. years and, and often stays within families for long yep. periods of time. So you've got to buy your grapes. Yes. How do you source great I, fruit? There is really earthy down-to-earth, great grape growers out there. And a lot of them need, a lot of them start by selling their fruit to big co-ops. Mm. So That's how KWV started. Yes. That's how they had a hold on the market for as long as they did. Yes. So I would approach a grower and say, listen, um, I know that if I look at the Vimpro stats, this is what you get more or less. If I pay you Double that. But there's certain things that needs to be done. We need to have a good relationship. And I have met some amazing people through that. And that is how I source my fruit. Have you been able then through that process to dictate the quality of grapes? To yes. dictate when grapes are picked to allow the sugars to be exactly right, to allow the balance of the fruit to be exactly right. So you're not you're you're buying a product, you're actually dictating almost the yes. product that you will be buying. Initially I did that by myself. And then later I appointed somebody that can go out because during harvest it gets hectic and I don't have the time really to mm. go from vineyard to vineyard. So I and you can't s- sample a bunch, a grape from every bunch. You, you have no. to trust that the, the bunches are going to be great. Well, you, you take a sample, but you take a representative sample of the block mm. and you can still take a wrong sample. <laughs> so you depend on the grower a lot in that regard, also on the person that's helping me at the moment and then taste is very important you know you you look at what they've delivered to this guy where you look at that analysis and you look at analysis you get on your sampling and i've been working with the same producer for quite a few years so i know more or less where it will fall and i must tell you i am i'm so happy with the 2019 vintage and also my 2018 vintage because we moved drought into… Drought is good for grapes. Drought is good for grapes. It concentrates it, beautiful mm. color, beautiful expression of fruits, beautiful structured wines. When you taste a grape, yeah. can you realistically 
imagine the wine that will come from that grape? Or is there so much that happens to the grape? You know this is a grape that's going to work. You know it's got exactly the right balance I think what of sugars should... and acidity and everything else. It's a make great wine. But can you imagine the glass? And are you when, when you first sample that wine, is it what you imagined in the field? I've worked in the South African wine industry for very long. And I worked in California for three months. And the one thing I learned from the winemaker I worked with was do not go in and look for what you think is going to be in the glass. Look for what you don't want in the glass. So when you taste your grapes, is it green? Does it taste green? Because that is what's going to come through in your wine. You look at the pips. You look at the skin, how easily it releases its uh, color. You, you chew that skin to see, is it drying out your palate or is it soft? You look at the color of the pips. Is it green? Is it brown? Does it come easily off the flesh? When you squeeze it, when you taste it, what do you get? So for myself, I look at what I don't want in the glass. And I've been very fortunate that um, it worked for me up to now. <laughs> <laughs> look, if you've got a recipe, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to stick to it. Where is your business now? Where is Carmen's Common Wine Stevens business? Wines is based in Stellenbosch. We are what they call the new and upcoming uh, street, which is Bossman's Crossing it's it's quite central in Stellenbosch. You've got your own cellar. You, don't, you don't have the means of production, but you've got the means of manufacture. Yes. So we are we are officially the first black-owned winery, 100% black-owned winery in South Africa, and we opened that in January of this year. And you get emotional. I mean, yes. I, no, but I, I see it. Your eyes, your eyes well up. Your voice changes. It's a very significant achievement. It is. It's for me... I've worked very hard. I had to prove myself over and over and over again. And to be able to say that this is now our place, we make the calls. It is. It puts a different perspective on how you work, how you look at everything. So, no, it's a, for me, it is indeed, it, it's a big achievement. But my that's not my, my end goal. I need to have a... Because it's a nice cellar space. I have everything that I need to make wine. I can do up to 200 tons in my cellar. But I need a facility that I can call a home for my wines. And I need to be in a position at some point in my life where I have my own fruit as well. I don't have to have all my own fruit, but I have to have access to some of my fruit, which I grow myself. And... That is my next big step. Does that happen in Stellenbosch, or do you go? Do you become a bit more adventurous, and you go? I mean, I, I suppose wine land is so expensive, no matter where you go, whether mm -hmm. it be Elgin, which has blossomed, and mm -hmm. Robertson, which is doing amazing things, and the Swartland, where the Shenans that are coming out of the Swartland are just rich and magnificent, and textured, and complex, and glorious. So, where do where do you find that space where you can do it? I would like to believe that space is going to be in Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch is the tourism hub for... It is wine. It is wine. It's, if you go to anywhere in the world, you speak South African wine, they say, oh, you come from Stellenbosch. So I'm definitely working on that. If something else comes up, that's a little bit um, that I can uh, give my soul to, I'll probably do that as well. But my first choice is definitely Stellenbosch. Is mom still around? Yes. Oh. Very much. 
Is she glad she didn't make you pack your bags? I think definitely, yes. My mom, is, my mom and my dad is very proud of me. Um, I am a middle child, so... Uh, explains uh, everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where I come from, I come from a... My mom was a factory worker. So, to have a daughter, we are two... We, we were three. Um, two very successful children... I think any mother would be very happy and very proud of that. And my mom is extremely proud of us. And the guy who kept you in Elsenburg, the guy who, with whom you had the yeah. meeting, who read the riot act yeah. to your class, I won't say classmates, but to the people in your class. Well, to the, to the college. To the college. Mm. Is he still around? No, unfortunately he passed on. But did he see you, did he see you succeed? Yes, he did. He did. Absolutely. And did that matter? Did it matter? I would like to believe that when he looks back at Elsenberg, he can say that I was mm. part of why Carmen Stevens were able to finish Elsenberg and be a successful winemaker. I remember years ago I saw um, um, Franz Strubel, who was the MD of the Stell, where I worked first, and I saw him at the airport, and I thought he didn't recognize me, so I said, hi, and he said, oh, so nice to see you. How are you? I see that you're doing really, really well. And that for me is great. Well, it's peer recognition. Yeah. You are a peer. You're not working for me anymore. You're doing your own thing. You've had the guts and the temerity to go into an industry which is not welcoming. It's not, it hasn't treated you warmly. And to, to, have, to have those disagreements. I mean, you're big on paying it forward. You're big on education. You're big on supporting kids where you grew up. Yes, that's part of a cycle. Yes, I, I think I was very lucky. Years ago, I started a soup kitchen in Belhar, where I lived some of my, you know, grew up. And uh, we were able to feed between f three and 400 kids a cup of soup three times a week. And one day I was on a tour with this company in the UK that's selling my wines, sitting next to somebody, and he said, Common, do you know of any charity in South Africa? Long story short, he, they gave me 6,000 rand. I could feed for another two and a half months. I sent thank you letters and pictures, and they were like, this is amazing. You did this with 6,000 rand. I said, 6,000 rand is a lot of money in South Africa when you feed kids soup. And they asked, Can, can't, we, can't we scale this? I was like, uh, what do you mean? I said, we cannot cook any more soup. It's coming out of every, every office, really. We, we don't have the capacity to. But then I thought about it. I said, okay, let me do a survey because I did this. I think my kids are very privileged. And that's why I did this. And I went into the schools to do a survey and I was shocked. I was, I think I was emotionally, emotionally, I did not prepare. I wasn't prepared for what I found. Kids fainting in class of hunger. Kids being in the sick room permanently because they're hungry. Kids can't focus. They're aggressive. Teachers can't work with them. And initially, I thought, I can't write this. Cannot write this to these people. And then I thought, no. Put it on paper and send it through. And he said, okay. What we'll do, we will, because it's an online company. They sell everything online. He said, come on, what we'll do, we will send an email to all the people that buy your wines and see if they don't want to chip in. And I thought, okay, send out the email on the Monday. We'll have the donation day on the Friday. 
we raised 1.2 million again in 10 hours. I was like, it's your favorite number. It's my favorite number. I'm like, oh my God, this is impossible. How do you do this? Because I thought we're going to have a nation day. I'll give each school maybe 10,000 rand. They must then give me the receipts of what they bought so the kids, the kids actually benefited from it. And then I thought, I cannot do this. So I reached the MPO and I partnered with a service provider and we then fed 3,060 kids with that money for entire school year, a breakfast and a lunch. The second year, we had it again. This year was during harvest, and I said, guys, I don't have the time. I, I'm so busy. And I said, come on, just send the pictures, write a small story, and let's see where we end up. We raised, we can easily feed this year 10,000 kids with that money. Carmen Stevens is the winemaker and the chief executive of the Carmen Stevens Foundation. She's got her own wine label. She's big in export. And she's a person in this industry which hasn't been particularly welcoming and particularly kind to her to watch. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.